Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 9th of September 2019 and this is episode 127. On today's programme, I talk to Emil Kwetzi from the Northwest University in South Africa about the 1914 Afrikaner Rebellion. I talked to Emil from his home in South Africa over the interweb. Emil, welcome back to the podcast. We're going to talk this time about the Afrikaner Rebellion of 1914. Before we commence, could you just remind us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Thanks for the opportunity, Tom, to be able to speak to your listeners again. Well, I have uh, two degrees in history, and hence I am seen as a professional historian. But I was never interested in the Great War until I was able to visit uh, the battlefields in France and in Belgium in 2011. Um, After that trip for the 95th anniversary of Dowell Wood, um, that started on the 1st of July 1916, uh, well, uh, part of the Battle of the Somme, of course, um, I um, obtained an interest that has never left me. And it's through that so-called study tour that I became interested in the First World War, started to read up about it. Uh, I never did anything with the information until I found the story of Lance Corporal Vic Hamann, uh, that was a soldier from the town of Lichtenberg in the Northwest Province, the Old Western Transvaal. And as I delved deeper into his story, I realized that he was a soldier of two graves. And after six years of researching him, I finally published uh, a short bi- a biography about him, did some additional research about his grave in Lichtenberg as well, which will still be published in the nearby future. And obviously for um, listeners, that it, that was a story of a, a podcast we did a, a couple of weeks ago, and it's still available if people would like to listen to it. Anyway, today we're going to talk about the Afrikaner Rebellion. So if we could start at the beginning, who were the Afrikaners or Boers, and how do they end up in South Africa? And can you, t- can you tell us about their culture, religion, and language. Yes, of, uh, with, with pleasure. I am myself an Afrikaner, as my accent uh, betrays me. I've got a Transvaal accent, as they call it. The Afrikaners is a South African community, which can be considered to be a minority community, which are the descendants of Western Europeans, um, as well as, uh, in several cases, British, British settlers. I am one of them, uh, through my mother's line, that settled in South Africa from the middle 17th century right up to, yeah, I would say, uh, the early 19th century. What happened was, after the Portuguese found the route around Africa to the Far East, the Dutch East Indian Company, or the VOC as it was known, decided to open up a refreshment station in Table Bay, uh, where we have Cape Town today. This happened in 1652. In 1657, several of the employees of the Dutch East Indian Company decided that they would like to leave the employment of the VOC and and, and farm the immediate areas around Table Bay. They were allowed to do so and were given the new name of a Freiburger, or as a loosely translated version in English, a free citizen. Now, these Freiburgers started to go further into the interior as their numbers increased, and they were able to create new settlements in the Western Cape. Some of them decided that they want to be drovers, and they later obtained the name Trekboer, 
which means migrating farmer, poor being the Dutch word for farmer. And so they would um, go from one grazing field to the next in the interior of the Western Cape, opening up those areas for um, the cartographers of the time. And hence you have this expansion of the European community in South Africa. And they spoke Dutch, some of them spoke German, and through the immigration of French Huguenots that were um, fleeing France, you also had several French speakers that settled in the town of Franschhoek in the Western Cape. But later on, the lingua franca was Dutch. By the time that we reach 1795, the VOC is completely bankrupt and they have to sell the Cape of, of, of Good Hope, which the British Empire then bought for six million pounds. And so the Western Cape became part of the British Empire. Of course, it's a strategic place, so the British would obviously like to have it. And except for a short interval during the uh, first part of the Napoleonic Wars, the Western Cape became uh, literally a British society and the viewpoint of um, the administration of the Cape following British procedures, English becoming the main language in courts, and in government, and you had several of the Dutch speakers feeling that they were they were at the short end of the stick when it came to being able to continue their culture as they obtained it from their ancestors that arrived in South Africa. So you had two different kinds of communities in the Western Cape, your English speakers and your Dutch speakers. Many of the Dutch speakers in the Eastern province, or what we call today the Eastern Cape, felt that the British government in Cape Town was letting them down, especially when it came to security reasons against the Kosa community that were uh, very able and brave warriors. It literally boiled to such a point that your Dutch speakers in the eastern province decided to leave the Cape and move into the interior from 1835 until, as we uh, would say, the end of the Great Track was until 1845. And one of the main plans of the Great Track was to establish new republics in the interior outside the control of the British Empire. Now, these uh, 10,000 Dutch-speaking Eastern Frontier farmers later call themselves food trackers. Late, uh, a loose translation is uh, those who move in front. And these food trackers succeeded in establishing uh, several republics, but by the end of the 19th century, the two larger ones that remained was the Transvaal and the Orange Free State. And the citizens of these two republics call themselves Boers, or Boer as we will pronounce it in Afrikaans. Now, the uh, religion that they followed was your Calvinist approach to, to the Protestant faith, uh, the Dutch Reformed Church, and also two uh, special established Reformed churches were the uh, main churches in the Transvaal and the Orange Free State. They were Republican orientated. They believed to not to serve under any monarchy. Uh, so there were obviously elections for uh, a, a council that we call the Volksraad, and uh, another word for it will be a Boer Parliament and its own presidents. And these two republics would be conquered during the Anglo-Boer War. Firstly, in, if you want to look at the point of uh, the Boers losing their capitals in 1900, that was the technical process of, of conquering the Boer republics. But the, the official date that historians agree was the true end of the Boer republics was the 31st of March, oh, sorry, 31st of May, I beg your pardon, of 1902, when the peace treaty of Vereniging was signed in Pretoria the former capital of the Transvaal Republic. After 1902, 
the whole identity of being Boer changed and the, the new group name Africana was accepted. And this makes the Afrikaners, towards my recollection, the only community on the African continent that's got the continent's name in its own group name. Though there are small groups of uh, Afrikaan speakers that say that there's no such thing as an Afrikaner and there's only Boers, that does exist, but the majority say that we are Afrikaners or Afrikaanses because we speak the language of Afrikaans, which is one of the youngest language, uh, languages in the world. I believe it was officially accepted as a language in South Africa and in uh, Southwest Africa in 1925, uh, when it was accepted as a national language in South Africa. It's also a scientific language with many publications in Afrikaans, uh, my work, uh, or my my latest work that's 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 on its way to be finished will also be written in Afrikaans and and it's it's uh, a language that is a com combination of several languages with Dutch being its main basis. The culture of Afrikaners, you know, as it as it changed over the centuries, uh, there's not one specific one that one can say that's Afrikaner tradition. People have a variety of different. Uh, traditions, but you might find some similarities in different groups when you look at the kind of um, music that's listened to, uh, the kind of holidays that are followed. But there's major regional differences with Afrikaans speakers as well. Even during the time of the National Party, they said that there's a major difference between a Afrikaner and the Cape in comparison to an Afrikaner in the Transvaal. So we come to 1902 and the, the Boer communities in the Transvaal and the Orange Free State are absorbed into the Union of South Africa. What is the political situation in South Africa in the first decade of the 20th century? Well, it was like trying to balance yourself on a piece of string uh, stretched around um, over a canyon. Uh, the uh, political powers had to really practice a proper balancing act not to upset one of the two different groups of the white community of South Africa, where you had a, a major distinction between English speakers, and therefore many believe that all of them were pro-British, and your Dutch, and let's call them now Afrikaans speakers, that were still yearning back towards the times of the Boer Republics, because that idea of reinstating the Boer Republics did not die with the peace treaty of Vereniging in 1902. It was a major national project for Prime Minister General Louis Boerta and his, um, I can probably call him his deputy, General Jan Smuts, to bring this idea within the white community that English speakers as well as Afrikaans speakers must actually now reconcile. And they did that with everything with the unification of South Africa in 1910, as well as with the establishment of the Union Defence Force in 1912, where the Chief of Staff, General Christian Bayers, um, had to share the responsibilities with General Lucan. There you have English speaker and Afrikaans speaker now working together to build a national defence force. But it did not really succeed if you look at the Afrikaner Rebellion in 1914, because one should not forget that the Scorched Earth policy, as implemented by the British military in South Africa, cut very deep, even still today, within the Africano community. The Scorched Earth policy, as dictated by, I believe Robert started with it, but Kitchener has blamed especially for it. A, a Boer's home and his uh, possessions and his livestock will all be destroyed, and his family, his wife, his children, and even some of the elderly, uh, as well as black workers on the farm, would then 
be placed in what the British military called refugee camps, but later on it would be known as concentration camps. And these camps, the majority of them, were so badly administrated that the, the current tally is that 32,000 uh, South African women, children, elderly, and black South Africans perished in these concentration camps in a matter of two and a half years. For many of the Boers that survived the war, either as prisoners of war or as bitter einders, uh, meaning that they fought really, literally to the last day. Coming back home to a burnt-out um, home with nothing after the war, women and children dead, buried in a concentration camp cemetery, one can understand that they hated the British Empire for destroying their lives in such a way. And now that the Boerta government requested them now to serve Britain in any kind of conflict, was for them the highest level of treason towards the uh, former Boer commanders. Now, we talked obviously about this is a political dispute largely between two sections of the white community in South Africa. What about what was the political status of the black community in South Africa in, in the early Edwardian period? Well, where, the, where there is proof of the British military promising black South Africans more political rights and power if they serve them against the Boer commanders, none, none of their promises actually are realized. As a matter of fact, in the Treaty of Vereniging, nothing is literally uh, stated uh, in favor of black South Africans because it was hoped that the so-called uh, black question would be solved later on, either in the colonial governments or later when there was a new political agreement for a new political dispensation, which did happen on the 31st of May 1910 for the unification of South Africa. But segregation was key, and segregation was the main process that uh, the British colonial powers followed in all four colonies before 1910, and when the Union of South Africa came into formation, they also followed the segregation policies of before. Uh, the British even had a commission uh, to dictate uh, what to do with the rights and privileges of black South Africans, which was known as the Landon Commission of 1903. So your black South African is really at the back of the line when it came to opportunities in any form uh, that the government could provide. And that was especially the case with the Union Defense Force, when, where they were only requested to be of a supplement, supplementary and as well as an assistant position. They could not bear arms. They had to be stretcher bearers and they had to serve the soldiers, uh, the white soldiers that were um, either wounded on the battlefield and even carry off their corpses. We come to 1914 and elements of the Boer community rebel. Why did they choose to do it in 1914? Well, they were not in favour of serving Britain against Germany. Many of the veterans of the, of the Anglo-Boer War, which is also known as the South African War, they were the veterans 12 years prior. And Germany was actually... Um, in support of 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 the of the Boer republics, even though they were not willing to stand up against uh, Britain during the war, they did have sympathies with the Boers. Even before the war, I recall that Kaiser Wilhelm II even sent President Paul Kruger of the Transvaal a telegram congratulating President Kruger on stopping the Jameson raid of 1895 when the British tried to commit. Uh, well, let me not say the British; let me rather say when Cecil John Rhodes. Um, the former prime minister of the Cape Colony, organized with the um, group of reformers in Johannesburg to commit a coup d'etat in, in, in the Transvaal. So the, it, it's, it's absolutely uh, no mystery that the Germans, as well as with other European nations, had sympathies with the, uh, with the Boer republics. 
And now that the Buta government is asking these former veterans to take up arms against Kaiser Wilhelm II, it feels like picking a fight with someone that you didn't have any trouble with before. As well as, and this is maybe the main drive sphere, they were still dreaming of reinstating the Boer republics, but they lost to be able to recreate it. And even General Herzog, which was now the champion of the nationalist feelings, said that the day when Great Britain is in conflict with a continental power, that will be the perfect opportunity for the Boer, uh, for the, uh, Boer republics to be reinstated. And when the war broke out in Europe and Britain was now um, at, at odds of Germany, that felt like an omen for, for the Boer republics to be reinstated, even if it had to be done by force. However, there's another story that I can quickly tell you that also pushed them to the point of rebellion. One of the heroes of the uh, South African war was General Kurs de la Rey. And by the time of 1914, he was the senator for the town of Lichtenberg, in the in in the parliament in in, in in Cape Town, and when the parliament had to decide if South Africa is going to remain neutral or join Britain, the Lorraine made it very clear that he was against the idea of serving with Britain against Germany, and that South Africa had to remain neutral. He even had a private discussion of General Louis Boerta in the company gardens, which is right next to the Parliament of South Africa, to remind the general, that there were promises made at the Treaty of Vereniging that had to be fulfilled. But nothing came from that private discussion, and De La Rey, uh, took the overnight train from Cape Town to Johannesburg uh, to meet up with General Bayers, the, the former chief of staff of the Union Defence Force, who resigned when he heard that South Africa was going to declare war against Germany. And Bayers picked up De La Rey at the Johannesburg station. And they were on their way to the town of Potterstrom to speak to General Jan Kemp, who was stationed there and who had just finished training 2,000 more Union Defence Force troops. But along the way, something happened. One of those crossroad moments that you can only think what would have been the case if it did not happen. At the same time in Johannesburg, the Foster gang was running rampant in Johannesburg. They were notorious bank robbers. And the Union police were looking for them, putting roadblocks all across Johannesburg. And when Bayes and De La Rey were driving in Bayes's car to Potterstrom, the police mistaken them for the foster gang. And one of the constables of the Union police, a man called Charles Drury, fired off a shot, it ricocheted, and it hit De La Rey in the back. And De La Rey died in the arms of Bayes. And when these veterans, most of them being from the lower income class, still harboring a, 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 a hatred against the, the British Empire, heard that the Euro de la Rey, who was against the war, was shot the day after he left Parliament. It was the last straw that broke the camel's back. De la Rey was buried in, in Luxembourg the week after, uh, on the 22nd of, of September. He was shot on the 15th of September, 1914. And there at that funeral in Luxembourg, one could see that there was a lot of frustration and anger at Boerta and Smuts and the British Empire for the fact that De La Rey, the Euro, one of the heroes of, of, of the Boer commanders in the Anglican War, was now literally shot, even by mistake. That's what the historical sources are saying. But many of them believe that it was actually planned. But that's just a conspiracy. But they, they blamed Boerta and Smuts for De La Rey's death. And that was the last straw 
that they could take. So before we get on to how the um, rebellion un unfolded, what were the objectives of the um, of the leaders? Well, your leaders that I can quickly list is uh, General Christian Bayers, who resigned his commission in the Union Defence Force. Then you have the other hero of the South African War, General Christian de Wet from the Free State. And you have General, I don't think it was a general back then, I think it was only a colonel, uh, Jan Kemp, uh, a very young officer in comparison to his seniors. And then also General Mani Maritz, that was a um, the commander of the South African forces in Uppington and Northern Cape, the last town before one reaches German Southwest Africa. And the main the main reason for me uh, that I can say that the rebellion broke out was to reinstate the Boer republics uh, of the Transvaal and the Orange Free State, and to therefore become free and independent from the British Empire and be able to rule and govern themselves again uh, as, as, as free uh, republics. To do so by force, to literally force Boerta and Smuts to resign their positions uh, for the republics to be uh, reinstated, to be reproclaimed, in other words. So how did the rebellion unfold and how far did it get? Well, the, re the rebellion was only a few months, here from 15 September 1914 until the 4th of February uh, 1915. Uh, and you, it, it was kind of a very stormy time in, in South Africa, though, those months, because you had to decide if you are pro-rebellion or not. I mean, you literally had a case here where father and son would disagree and join different sides, brother against brother, cousin against cousin. And you had about 12,000 Afrikaner rebels joining the, the rebels' cause, being commanded by Bayers, De Wet, De Kemp, and as well as Mani Maritz. But the South African government sent in 32,000 troops, of which 20,000 were Afrikaners. And that was, of course, for political reasons. I mean, fellow Afrikaner stopping an Afrikaner rebellion is, of course, one can see a very insulting move, but it's also a political uh, statement that is made. The battles that were fought in the Free State, the Northern Cape and the Transvaal from uh, under the different rebel leaders all deserve a, a study on its own. But just uh, quickly, you, you had Christian Bayer's fighting the Northern Free State as well as, as, as in, the, in the Transvaal. He actually died while trying to cross the Vaal River uh, on the 8th of December 1914. It is stated that he had a heart attack while trying to swim the river and he drowned. But it's quite, you know, his reasons for his death is quite suspicious. General De Wet was captured at Waterbury, which is in today's Botswana, uh, after losing the Battle of Mushroom Valley. And he was incarcerated in the old fort prison in Johannesburg and released, I think, after nine months, if I'm correct. Then you had Marnie Maritz, which is a, a, a rebel leader really working on his own. He was the commander of the South African forces in Uppington. And when he decided to mutiny against the South African government and join the Germans, most of these men followed him. And they became what was known as the Afrikaner Freikorps uh, on the side of the Germans during the German Southwest African campaign. And he survived the war, I think you're right, up into the 1940s. I think he's buried in Pretoria. But he never really got a, a punishment of note for the fact that he mutinied with, with, with his men. Uh, if one looks at what happened to the rebel leaders, uh, they actually got off, off quite scot-free, uh, except for Bayes that drowned during the, 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 the um, entire re rebellion. The vet was incarcerated. Maritz was able to go through the entire war in, in Namibia and Angola, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And General Jan Kemp, that wanted to link up with Maritz, 
Um, he was even able to conquer the town of Kuruman in the Northern Cape for his men to be able to link up with, with uh, Maritz. And he himself later became a minister in the South African governments of General Herzog. But there's one gentleman that one cannot ignore when it comes to the Afrikaner Rebellion because General Jan Smuts made him into a martyr. And this man's name is Yupi Furi. Yupi Furi was part of the very last battle of the, of the Afrikaner Rebellion, known as the Battle of Noit Gedacht, on the 16th of December 1914, and they lost. And when he was captured with his brother, they were taken to a prison in Pretoria, and Jan Smits wanted to make an example of Yupi Furi, because Yupi Furi was indeed found guilty of high treason, because unlike Christian Bayers, Yupi Furi never surrendered his commission from the Union Defence Force. He was therefore still on strength in the Union Defence Force as a captain when he turned rebel. And he was shot at dawn on the 20th of December 1914, and his death made him into a martyr, which the nationalist government of General Herzog and the National Party from 1948 onwards still used as an example of Smuts's merciless conduct. But rebellion ends. What were the casualties in the conflict and what were the long-term political and social consequences? Well, um, on the government side, the, the tally that we've got is 101 killed and wounded. So in total, 101 soldiers that were killed and wounded. But on the, the, the rebel side, you've got 124 killed and 229 wounded. So if you look at that, the, the rebels suffered more than the, uh, the, the than the government troops did. But if you have to compare it to um, the amount that was on strength, the, the, the Union of South Africa's defense forces had 32,000 men in the field, and the rebels had 12,000. So they were highly outnumbered in what was called the, the, the Afrikaner Revolt. And I've seen that there's other names for it as well. For example, the Maritz Rebellion, named after General Maritz, as well as Something new I didn't know, it was also known as the Five Shilling Rebellion. So how is the rebellion viewed today? Well, it's I experience it as a kind of a footnote these days um, in South African history. Even though the National Party did make use of it uh, for, for political reasons, especially the death of Yupi Furi, and nationalist and uber-conservative South Africans might steal today, uh, it, it, it's, it's experience, it, there's not a lot of uh, discussion about it at all, and when you look at the monuments that South Africa has about the rebellion, they are also far and few between. Uh, the one that I can recall that is the most prominent for me in the area where I live is the so-called Truce Tree outside Kuruman, where General Kemp, Jan Kemp, received the surrender of the town from Captain Freiling uh, in November of 1914, when the rebel forces under Kemp uh, were able to, to capture the town on the basis that the government troops will not be heard and that the rebels would be able to replenish their, 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 their supplies. And this was the, the, just before Kemp wanted to join up with Maritz and lost a great deal of his men and horses while covering what we will call the Botswana to go into German Southwest Africa to join up with Maritz. Uh, I can't really recall a major monument except that uh, for the Afrikaner Boer Rebellion. And, and it's, it's, it's kind of like you say, a footnote when it comes to in comparison to other conflicts that South Africa endured. For example, the preceding the, uh, South African War of 1899 to 1902, as well as uh, South Africa's participation in the Great War 
and also the other conflicts that South Africa participated in in the 20th century. So like what one might have with the Senussi rebellion in Libya, the Afrikaner rebellion has not received the attention that it deserves. And finally, Emil, where can people find out more about the Afrikaner rebellion and also your research? Well, there are several, I'm sure that there must be several books published about the Afrikaner rebellion. The majority that I studied how were unfortunately only, well, I don't know if you want to see it as fortunate or unfortunately, but they were in, in, in Afrikaans themselves because it's, it was a topic that your nationalist-minded historians studied thoroughly in the 20th century. Um, my work, if someone would like to read more about Vic Haman, I would suggest that they have a look at my academia.edu profile as an, an, or they might be able to find my same article about Vic Haman. Uh, it is in English uh, on the Northwest University's library website. They have all of our publications there on a cloud. And another thing that that I have been working on for a company that I think many of the listeners will enjoy, for those who've got smartphones, no matter if it's a, an Android phone or an iPhone, is the, um, the smartphone app that I've been working on called Road Trip RSA. Road Trip RSA that shows people where all the South African places of interest are located. And hence, if there's any listener that would like to know precisely where is Devilwood or where if, if there's any South African-related monument in the UK and or around the world, and especially South Africa, then this app is free of charge to download, and that will be able to show them exactly the uh, importance of the, of the uh, place of interest within South Africa's historical scope. Emil, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.